From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, I'm Lisa Hamilton, and this is Casey Cast. Today's guest, social entrepreneur and researcher Stephanie Hoops, has developed a series of measures around ALICE, which stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed, which is an acronym used to describe families and workers who live above the poverty line but still earn too little to make ends meet. She started her career as a professor and has a PhD from the London School of Economics. She now runs the Research and Innovation Center, United for Alice, at the United Way of Northern New Jersey. With her work, Stephanie is shining a bright, data-powered spotlight on the lives of these working families as she seeks to answer questions like, how we can build a better economy that recognizes the contributions of all workers and families? What makes a difference for families economically? And what differentiates the families that fall further into poverty from the ones who are just scraping by or even pulling through during these challenging times? That's a lot of ground to cover. So let's get started. Welcome, Stephanie, and thank you for joining us on CaseyCast. Lisa, thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. And I'm so excited to dig into these big questions. Fantastic. Well, let's start with the basics. Where did the idea for Alice come from? You were teaching at Rutgers at the time. How did Alice come to be? So you never know what leads to the next thing. And I'm working along in my career as a professor and studying and teaching political economy. And I volunteered for my local United Way. And they put me on the grants committee. And at the time, our little United Way was in a county where the poverty rate was about four or 5%. And I was so excited. I thought, you know, I'm going to have this money to give away and we are going to end poverty. Maybe we'll be the first county in the, in the country to eliminate poverty. And then I started reading the grant applications and there was so much need and very compelling. I thought this is a huge mismatch between this data that I have on the one hand and what I'm seeing on the ground on the other. So I put back on my researcher hat, went and looked into the federal poverty level and realized it was very poorly equipped to tell me anything that was happening on the ground in my county or really any county in the country. It had been developed more than 50 years ago when Lyndon Johnson needed a measure for the war on poverty. And it's the same number across the country built on the premise that food is a third of your budget. So 50, 60 years after the war on poverty, food is no longer a third of your budget. And lo and behold, there are many more households living in financial hardship, but that aren't captured by that federal poverty level. So I went back to the United Way and said, I've got this idea for a report. I'll do it for free. It'll just be a little project on the side. So in a small committee, we actually came up with the acronym ALICE, and we built what we call the household survival budget and measured just the bare minimum to live and work in the modern economy in our, you know, and, and then counted up how many people in our community earn below that. And so instead of four or 5%, it was 25%. Mm-hmm. And that's when we realized this is a huge mismatch in our understanding. And so the report went out into the community and a year later, somebody, I ran into a friend of mine on the street and she was just coming from work and said, hey, we just had this great, meeting. She worked for the county and we were trying to decide a policy uh, solution. And somebody said, how will this impact Alice? And I thought that's the moment I knew we were on to something. 
And from there, we went back and did a report for the whole state. Then other states saw it, and we expanded to six states, 10 states, and now we are actually in 27 states. You sort of briefly touched on this archaic federal poverty measure that we use across the country in order to try to understand who might be low income in this country. But what you reveal is that that's actually not a good measure. So tell us more about sort of what you learned about who are Alice families and what their circumstances are. So technically, Alice families are households that earn above the federal poverty level, but below that threshold that's built on that bare minimum budget. But in, in practical every day, we all know Alice. Alice workers help our economy to run smoothly. That's our childcare worker, it's the security guard, it's the barista at the coffee shop. And then, you know, during the pandemic, Alice was the essential worker who helps many of us quarantine at home. And in fact, uh, delivery drivers are one of the number one jobs in many states across the country. And then closer to home, you know, many of us have children who are starting out in the work world who are Alice, parents who haven't been able to save enough and are needing to retire are Alice, and, and many of us have been Alice. So this isn't a group over there that we kind of think about. It is core to our everyday lives. And a key part of being Alice is struggling, you know, paycheck to paycheck but little or no savings. And so one emergency away from financial ruin in many cases. So in total, there's 42% uh, of households across the country are below the Alice threshold. So that would be poverty plus Alice equals below the Alice threshold. We also know that these households are composed of all race and ethnicities, all household types, all ages, and they live in all areas of the US urban, suburban, rural. And then we also know that some groups are disproportionately Alice, uh, especially those that are Black, Hispanic, uh, have a disability, uh, limited English speaking. And then if you have a combination of those, you're even more likely to be below that Alice threshold. You said 42%, and I think there probably are many listeners who are startled by that number. I don't think many people really recognize the extent of financial struggle that exists in this country. And so your research revealing that nearly half of the population is Alice or below, uh, individuals who are struggling with financial insecurity is, I hope, concerning and alarming to, to people who hear what we're really grappling with here in this country. And, and I think, you know, very relevant to your work is the fact that half of children live in families that are below the Alice threshold. So that's, you know, living in a family that can't provide the basic needs for a child. So obvious immediate in, impact, but also some long-term implications for that. And that race ethnicity divide is, is striking there too. We found that 70% of black children, 68% of Hispanic children were living in households below that Alice threshold compared to 36% of white children. Which, as you noted, puts their futures at risk because their families aren't able to provide them with those really important basics that provide stability for children growing up, a, a roof over your head, food on the table, 
clothes to go back to school, all those things that are really important. Um, one thing people might be thinking about is the way you calculate this measure of financial instability. And I think you call it the Alice threshold. And it's different across different places based on the cost of living. Could you explain what the Alice threshold is and how it's calculated? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because we work uh, very hard to be transparent in our measures. So it is interesting what's behind it. So the Alice threshold is based on the survival budget, which is just those core household items that you need, housing, childcare, food, transportation, healthcare, uh, a smartphone in the modern age, and then Alice pays taxes. So we provide budgets for all different household types, and you can see exactly what those amounts are. So a very transparent budget. And in part, we do that because each budget item might seem small, but when you add it up, it's suddenly it can be a large number. And we want folks to see where that comes from. And if you try and cut one of those out, how hard it would be to, to be able to function. So that survival budget is, is our kind of key guide. And with that, we're able to capture the very different cost of living across the country and even within states. And so ultimately what we're doing is here's the cost of living, here's what wages pay. And then we see this mismatch between the two in every community. The first letter in Alice is assets. And when you were talking about a family's financial stability, part of that equation is, do they have any resources to draw on? And so um, your research pays attention to a family's assets. What kind of assets are you talking about? And what did you learn about whether or not families have any rainy day fund and, and how that affects their financial stability? So that uh, rainy day fund is pretty famous out there in uh, data world. How many families have assets to keep going for three months of an unexpected expense or $400 unexpected expense? And we see kind of overall more than half of households, 55%, have some kind of rainy day fund. But when you break it down above and below the Alice threshold, you see something really different. So for the wealthier households, it's about three quarters of households have that rainy day fund availability. And yet below that Alice threshold, it's about a quarter. So a really big difference. And then even within that, we see differences by race and ethnicity with white households having slightly more and black and Hispanic households having even less. You talked about some of the ways you disaggregate the data. That's one of the things that we found interesting about your report is that you disaggregate Alice data in a lot of different ways, not just racial, but rural and urban and family demographics. Is there anything you'd like to highlight from what you saw about who's more likely to be Alice and, and who isn't? Well, a lot of what we do is myth busting, I would say. And so there are stereotypes about uh, who is struggling in this country. And it's been very powerful to show that people in all kinds of households are struggling. So young households, senior households, and households with workers. I think one of the most striking data points for us was when we looked into uh, specifically families with children that you can be living in a family with two working parents and still be below the Alice threshold. In fact, more than a quarter of married parents, both working, are struggling below the Alice threshold. And in a country where you think if you work hard, you can support your family, 
it doesn't match. And so I think sometimes it's unsettling the data that, that we have, but it's critical to highlight a reality that's happening if we have any chance of, of finding better solutions. Um, over time, do you have any idea of what separates Alice families who gain stability over time from families whose lives grew more unstable? Is there anything that you could highlight that might make the difference? Yeah, so in our one of our recent reports called The Pandemic Divide, we looked at um, who was doing better during the pandemic. And while most Alice families were doing worse uh, throughout the pandemic, and we can dig into that more, there was a small group who was doing better. So we looked into what kind of characteristics they had, and it was strikingly different. So the folks, the households that were able to do a little better during the pandemic were those that had a full-time job, um, had received a raise or a promotion, or started a new job. They also had insurance through their employer or a union. They had a savings or checking account. They had that rainy day fund. And they also had a retirement plan on track. And then kind of a last dimension that I think is important to know is they were confident that they could receive credit if they applied. And a lot of households uh, don't have that confidence or that access to credit. So, you know, those are all basic things and, and things policymakers know how to support. Your work has produced several reports, one of which, The Pandemic Divide, looks at the impact of COVID-19 on America's working families who are struggling to make ends meet. In a nutshell, how has the pandemic changed everyday life for Alice families? So the pandemic has been really tough for Alice families, and I think this is a place where averages have been deceiving and also just the experience of so, so many people, the pandemic really wasn't that bad. If you had a salary, if you were able to continue working from home, you actually had some quality time with your family and it was not a stressful experience. But for many Alice families, it was not only a health crisis, but also an economic crisis. They're much more likely to have lost a job or um, earnings as hours were cut back. They had huge challenges of having to go into work. Getting there uh, was a challenge. Keeping healthy was a challenge. And then having to juggle children, trying to learn remotely, and childcare with childcare centers closed. So the challenge physically, financially, and emotionally was really difficult for most Alice families. What does all this mean to you about the state of? the financial health of families and as a result, their children in this country. Yeah, I, I think about this a lot. And I, you know, obviously have a lot of data on how challenging it is for Alice families. But I, I want to make sure that all of us keep in mind that it's not Alice's fault. You know, Alice is working hard. Alice is helping us keep our economy running smoothly. And we have a system that's not working for them. We have a system where the cost of living is higher than a lot of jobs and important jobs, jobs that we need are paying. And so it's a problem for everybody and, and all of us to be thinking about solutions. It puts millions of families in 
what's obviously an unsustainable financial situation. So really uh, your data, I think, is in every way a call to action for, for all of us to think about what kinds of changes we need to make. You know, the, the Casey Foundation and the United for Alice initiative share this love of data in common. How do you use your, your data in, in your work in ways that you think will drive change? What do you think will take us from this data to, to action? We have had great success with our partners across the country in having this data kind of move into action. In Northwest Arkansas, there's an initiative bringing computers and Wi-Fi hotspots to Alice students and their families. In Western Connecticut, there's an enrichment fund that's helping Alice families support their children so they can participate in extracurricular activities. In North Idaho, Alice has been part of the rationale to bring full-day kindergarten to the state. And then in United Way, in Miami-Dade, has launched Eden Place, which is a community support for parents to help their children's education. So all kinds of good work is, is happening. Obviously, we need more, but just love seeing our partners come up with these creative ideas and, and identifying the need on the ground where they are. So you took this project from New Jersey to, to now 24 different states, I think United for Alice is working in. What have you learned along the way as you've taken an effort like this to broader scale and, and how you refine it or make it work in all these different places or make it useful for people in all these places? We want to do the best quality work and we want it to be useful. So our partners have been great about, you know, sharing that commitment to excellence, being in it for the long term, and then constant engagement. You know, we ask them about what's happening on the ground, what do they need, and as a result, we come up with all kinds of cool tools. Uh, we have a, a very busy website called unitedforalice.org, so I hope your listeners will check it out. And so we have all kinds of things from uh, a wage tool where you can see, you know, what wage you need to support the survival budget in which county. We have a legislative district tool that as a result of our uh, partners saying, hey, we need to tell our legislators about this. They only listen if they know it's, you know, happening in their district. All right, we can, we can provide that for you. And so we have a, a great legislative district tool so it's all about, you know, listening, feedback, and that ongoing communication. And it's got to be two ways. Well, it sounds like you have provided a great set of tools and information that can inform a wide variety of stakeholders in this work. And that sort of leads to my next question. Making sure Alice Families Thrive isn't just the role of United Way, but really all of us, we get the opportunity to partner with lots of different organizations around the, the country. How do you think all of us, all kinds of organizations, public, private, nonprofit, can better serve Alice Families? Well, I really appreciate that you have that broad view because it's the, the magnitude of the challenge is so big. It's going to take all of us uh, who care. It's going to take a wide array of stakeholders. It's too much for one organization, and it needs to happen at all different levels, local, state, and, and then definitely at the federal level. So a couple things I'd like to point out that there's a lot of ways to attack this. And if you just start with the items in the, in the household survival budget. So 
affordable housing. You know, housing is just so fundamental to a family and to anybody's well-being. So there need to be more uh, affordable units. Uh, many times, smaller units are sufficient. You know, our households are getting smaller. They need to be near public transportation. And a lot of times, you think you have a, a housing issue, you actually have a zoning issue. Childcare has been challenged before the pandemic. The pandemic was even worse. And if we want parents to work, they need to have safe, affordable, quality childcare. One of the reasons it's a challenge is because a lot of those childcare workers are Alice themselves. So we know that they need to be paid more and yet it makes the childcare more expensive. So there's some good work going on to um, figure out that system. We have a pilot going on in New Jersey called United in Care that's looking to you know, reconfigure the structure of, of childcare and pairing up family childcare providers with childcare centers so that they can form a hub and spoke and each bringing a different dimension and some flexibility, some ability to expand capacity, but contract um, as, as needed. I know a big place uh, you all have been working on is food and it's not only availability, but healthy food. And one of the things that we notice in the very small budget item we have for food in the survival budget, you need time and talent to, to cook on that kind of budget. And if you're working two or three jobs, how are you gonna have the time to do that, let alone the energy? So we've got some mismatches going on of what's expected on the one hand in terms of the budget and then the other hand in, in the workplace. Transportation, there's a lot happening there. And then another area is taxes. You know, for the first time, we saw the power of the child tax credit during the pandemic. Some of the bad experiences of the pandemic could be rolled into some of the good experiences and, and learn from that. That's, that's awesome. Any new solutions that you think policymakers could be championing for these families? We have a lot of things percolating, and I, I want to maybe suggest that we could think beyond just policymakers. We know that employers probably have the most ability to impact Alice workers and certainly the, the fastest. So uh, one thing that we're piloting right now is called Alice at Work, and it's an education and certification program for employers. So how can they become aware of their Alice uh, employees and then what can they do better? So something that they, they can learn the first go round and then improve and do better going forward. That's a, a great solution. I'm glad to hear you thinking broadly about all the various actors who can make a difference in Alice lives. And that's a powerful statement to say employers actually have the most immediate impact on the lives of, of Alice workers. And I, I hope that our corporate leaders who are listening take heed of that. We'll have to ask you what's next for Alice and for you. Is there a next chapter already in the works or any dream projects on your to-do list? What else do we need to know about Alice? Oh, you ask all the good questions. Love this one. So first and most important, we will be updating the Alice data in the spring of 2023, and that will be our first understanding of the real impact on the Alice demographics at the local level. And, you know, we're all anxious to see what, you know, so many different things going on with the pandemic. How did that play out um, in terms of the Alice demographics? And then we have the Alice Economic Viability Dashboard coming. 
And it's something that we've been working on behind the scenes for a while. And then we were invited to participate in a sprint, the US Census Bureau, the Commerce Department, some folks at Harvard to develop a national well-being index. So they're helping us go through this process and we're building out a really cool dashboard that's gonna have housing, jobs, and another bucket, household basics, where we're able to look at these three things at the same time and identify gaps because we know there might be affordable housing in one place, but not good jobs at the same time. And so this is a way for us, but also for communities to better understand where their gaps are. And then part of the dashboard is gonna include a scorecard, how can you do better? And is it building affordable housing units? Is it making broadband Wi-Fi more available? So really helping communities identify where their specific gaps are. That's great. Well, as an organization that's been producing the Kids Count Dad Look for 32 years, we think this is a wonderful journey that you are on because I don't think we can ever have enough information or insight into how people are doing in this country because only when we're armed with that information can we really do the best that we can for them. So what an extraordinary project you have put together. You have given a name and a, and a face <laughs> to everyday Americans that, as you helped us understand, are around us all the time, the bus driver, the child care worker, your grocery store clerk, all these people that we depend on in our lives. You really made some of the challenges in their lives visible. And I'm so very grateful that you're doing this. So thank you for all the work that you're doing every day to help illuminate the financial hardships of families and to inspire us to build better solutions on their behalf. I wanna thank our listeners for joining in as well. If you like today's conversation, please recommend us to a friend. You can ask questions and give us feedback on Twitter by using the KCCast hashtag. And you can learn more about Casey and the work of our guests by checking out our show notes available at aecf.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.